1989, which only a few of you, I think, remember, <laughs> um, the British rock band Queen uh, released an album entitled The Miracle. And on that album, um, there was a song written by guitarist and background vocalist Brian May, and it was entitled, I Want It All. And you may not, again, remember when that song was released, but you may be a little familiar with the tune and maybe even one line from that song because it was used by Verizon over Christmas in their commercial um, promoting their phones. But the last song, I'm sorry, the, the last line of that song or the closing words are these. It ain't much I'm asking if you want the truth. Here's to the future. Hear the cry of youth. I want it all, and I want it now. I want it all, and I want it right now. And ironically, um, lead singer Freddie Mercury, um, who sang the um, song in the studio, never did sing that song live because he died two years later at the young age of 45. And believe it or not, that's going to be... Um, that will have been 30 years ago in November. However, I, I want it all, and I want it now, or it's 21st century reboot of our best life now, is not simply the cry of youth. It is the cry of the human heart, and more specifically, it's the cry of the natural, unregenerate heart. It's also the cry of the flesh or the indwelling sin within believers that pushes back against anything in regards to God and wars against the Spirit. And it's also the cry of the world that bombards us Every day, over and over and over, reinforcing the idea that our immediate self-gratification in the areas of health and wealth and prosperity and pleasure and power and prestige is to be pursued because it is our right. All of those things are, are ours to have it all and to have it now and our best life now is not only possible, but it's actually preferable because we all deserve it. It should be ours. But brothers and sisters, it may be the cry of the unregenerate heart, it may be the cry of the flesh, and it may be the cry of the world, but it is not the cry of a kingdom citizen. As a matter of fact, it's actually the, the exact opposite of kingdom living. And that's not, that's not my opinion, that's it's what Jesus is saying here in this sermon that we read in Luke chapter 6. This sermon is about kingdom living, and we're going to spend the next four weeks, actually five, we're going to take a break at Easter, but we're going to spend four weeks Walking through this sermon, part one we find here as Grant has read in verses 12 to 26, and there are three points that I want us to pay close attention to tonight in these, in these verses. We're going to look first at the call of the apostles, we're then going to look at the crowd that followed 
And then finally, we're going to look at the content, or at least the beginning, or the initial content of the sermon, all right? The call of the apostles, the crowd that followed, and the content of the sermon. And you're going to notice, of course, that this is um, the condensed version of the sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, all right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? Would you awaken our attention and refresh us and encourage us and challenge us and convict us and comfort us where need be as we see Jesus? I am weak and needy. Um, I'm unfit for this task. So I would ask for your support and, and your strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Would you give me the ability to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and with grace for the sake of Christ and his church? I pray these things. Amen. Well, let's look first at the call of the apostles in verse, verses 12 to 16. Luke says that at some point, right, because we're looking literarily rather than, rather than chronologically, but at some point in the midst of Jesus' ministry early on, uh, he retreats, it, he does what is his custom, and he retreats to a place to pray. And in this specific situation, he retreats to a mountain now, had this been chronological, it would have made sense. If you remember from our study on the first part of chapter 6, uh, he had just had an encounter with the Pharisees, and, and uh, he had left them in a place where they were furious and they were plotting his removal, and so it would make sense that he would want to retreat uh, and find a place where he could escape and maybe regroup. But this prayer is not a prayer that looks back. It's not a backward remembering, but it's a forward-looking uh, prayer because he is about to make a very, very important and significant decision. Uh, he is going to make a decision that would have lasting implications, lasting implications for those men and for their families, but also lasting implications for you and for me. Uh, they were lasting implications for the future because they were, uh, it, it had eternal implications. Right, there are implications for us as well because the decision that he was making was what he was going to do is choose the 12 men whom Paul would say would become the foundation upon which the household of God or the church would be established and built. He was about to choose a group that the Spirit was going to lead into all truth and whose teaching would be uh, that which the church, the early church in their formation, would devote themselves to. We read that from Luke and uh, as he wrote in Acts chapter 2, but it, it's also that which we devote ourselves to because it is, in Jude's words, the faith or the content of truth that has been handed down once for all to the saints. So we see those lasting implications of this one decision. And we could pause right here and spend a lot of time and reflect upon the importance of prayer, can we not? I mean, if Jesus paused to pray and he prayed all night prior to this decision, it makes sense that we, we too should take the time prior to decisions and pray. It makes sense 
that we take the time that our BCO requires even, as we did last year prior to particularization. We took the time that was required, 30 days here, 30 days there, between uh, the selection and the, or the announcing and the nominating and the selection of those who have fulfilled the role of deacons and elders. When the sun comes up, Jesus calls his disciples or those who had chosen to follow him and had committed themselves to learn from him, to join him on the mountain. And we don't know exactly how many there are. Verse 17 calls them a great crowd. We don't know how many of that great crowd came up, but we do know there were more than 12 because Luke says that he chose 12 out of that group from among them, and he named them apostles. But when we look at this list and we see this ragtag bunch of men that included a fisherman and a tax collector and a doubter and a zealot and a traitor who's going to betray him, it's hard. It's hard not to ask, is this really the group his prayer led to? Is this really the group who would spend three years with him and walking alongside him and learning from him? The group that would join him in his ministry of the proclamation of the word? Is this really the group that he was going to send out as messengers of the gospel? Is this really the group that he was going to grant authority to, to not only preach but to cast out demons and minister in his name? An authority, by the way, that no one other than Paul has had since. Is this really the group that would be the foundation of the church? And of course, the answer to all those questions is yes, this is the group. And again, we could pause and we could reflect on this truth about the importance of this group, because are we not just like them and are they not just like us? As I I was thinking about this group this week and thinking about all of us, and Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1 kept coming to mind. He says, not many, if any of them or us, are wise according to worldly standards. Not many are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we really thanks be to God that he chose these men and that he chose the likes of us to be involved and to join him in his ministry of proclamation. Thanks be to God that he's chosen to send us, not only to Bentonville, but to Northwest Arkansas and to the uttermost parts of the world to share the good news of what he has done for us and for our sin. And that leads, I believe, nicely into the crowd that followed in verses 17 to 19. 
Luke says in verse 17 that there are two groups. Uh, There's one group that he calls a great crowd of disciples, and then there's another group that's a great multitude of people. And these groups differ from one another in terms of their depth of devotion as well as in terms of what they value. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But this group of disciples, they are the ones who are following him and listening to him and learning from him. That's what disciple means. They've expressed a desire to hear his good news, and they're, and they're following up on that, and they, they want to hear that good news of the kingdom, and they're in a, in a, they want to be in a relationship with him. And the other group is a group that doesn't necessarily desire to listen to him. Uh, they're following because they've heard of what he can do, and they want in on that. Right? They were sick. And they were troubled in spirit, with unclean spirits, and, and they heard that he could deliver them, and he want, they wanted him to deliver them, so they tracked him down. It's, it's like people do today with those timeshare vacations, you know, they, they sit through that 90-minute spiel to get to the good stuff. And these folks in this larger group or are listening to the spiel because they want to get to the good stuff and they want that good stuff now. They're looking to him. They wanted him to touch him and, and power came out from him and would heal them and he did heal them and as a matter of fact, he healed all of them. And those groups were made up of people from all over the region. And it is debated whether they were only Jews or whether they were Jews and Gentiles. I tend to think it was both Jews and Gentiles based on the cities that were mentioned. And if we think about it in terms of concentric circles, we have that large crowd that's our largest circle, and then we move in with another circle, and we have the disciples, and then out of those disciples, he chose 12 and named them apostles. And Luke is clear that this target audience or his target audience is those inner two concentric circles. The others on the outside are definitely going to hear and he's going to say some things that are important for them to hear but his primary focus is on those who are following him. They want to hear the good news of the kingdom. He's going to share with them the good news of the kingdom. They're not going to be disappointed But they are, I believe, I think, going to be surprised. They're going to be surprised by what he says. Let's read verses 20 to 26 just so it's fresh in our minds. And look at the first part of this content of the sermon. It says, And he lifted up his eyes to his disciples, on his disciples, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their prophets, or their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. 
Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, there's a lot, a lot being communicated in these seven verses. Uh, there's actually three things that I want us to, to notice. That there is, he is making a declaration. He's making um, or providing a description. And then he's also uh, giving um, an exhortation, right? So there's a, a declaration, a description, and an exhortation. And let's look first at the declaration. Um, because we're, we're not, we can't read this uh, isolated from or independently from Matthew's larger uh, version of the Sermon on the Mount. And we can't read this version even separate from what we learned or read from uh, earlier in chapter 4 when uh, Jesus quoted Isaiah 61. Right? Both of those things are in our minds and we must leave them there. So we understand while there is a literal and, and physical point being made here uh, by Jesus, and we're going to look at that in just a minute, that there is a spiritual point as well. He's making a spiritual point in this declaration. And Jesus lifts up his eyes and he places his eyes on his disciples those, again, who are in those middle two circles, and he declares that they are kingdom citizens. The declaration is present. You are kingdom citizens. And he says their citizenship isn't dependent upon the presence or absence of material possessions. It isn't dependent upon uh, the absence or, or presence of their wealth. It isn't dependent upon their lack or abundance of needs. Um, their citizenship isn't dependent upon their pessimistic or their optimistic outlook on life. It isn't dependent upon their positive or negative relationships that they're in. It isn't dependent upon the, the positive or neg negative reputations they might have. It's dependent solely upon their faith in Him. Their citizenship is dependent upon their faith in Him and Him alone. And so He looks into their eyes. He wants to make sure that, that He has their attention. And so they're looking one another in the eye as He makes His way around the crowd. And He says, look, you are blessed if you, or you're blessed, not if you, but you are blessed because you understand and acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. You are, you are a citizen because you understand you are poor in spirit. You understand your spiritual need, and you have the inability to meet that on your own. You understand the salvation and the redemption and the restoration that you need and desire can only come outside of yourself. You are a citizen of the kingdom because you are hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that's not your own. You're a part of the kingdom and you understand that you're a part of the kingdom because you acknowledge that you are in need of a Savior and you have rightly determined that He is standing in front of you. He says your hope 
It's not in your wealth. It's not in your health. It's not in your prosperity. It's not in your prestige. It's in me. And he says, therefore, the kingdom is yours. And it's yours right now. The kingdom, while the kingdom has come, right? He says, this is just the beginning. For while the kingdom has come, and you are citizens of it, you possess it. It is not yet come in its fullness. The kingdom will one day be consummated, and it is as much yours now as it will be then. A strong declaration. And that leads, of course, to the description. Because I mentioned just a minute ago that there's not only this spiritual content, but there's also a literal and physical point being made here. He's also describing how kingdom lives, or, or how someone lives a life as a kingdom citizen, and how that is different from those who are not a part of the kingdom, and how they live. There's a difference between being in the kingdom and not in the kingdom. And, and this was not completely new. Right? There's always been a distinction. God's people had always been set apart from the world. It was something that we learned through our study of Leviticus. Right? We, we know that those dietary laws and, and what people ate and the things that they wore and the ceremonial and sacrificial systems were all intended to separate the people of God or Israel from the pagan nations around them. It was all intended to distinguish one group from the other. And what Jesus is saying as he's standing here before them and proclaiming this truth is he's saying that we're going to maintain these distinctions between the people of God and those who aren't a part of the people of God, from those who are kingdom citizens and those who aren't kingdom citizens. But the difference is the new wine, to go back to language we saw in chapter 5, the new wine is that this distinction is no longer going to be maintained through what you eat and what you wear and through the sacrificial and ceremonial systems. It's going to be maintained by what you value or treasure in life. This is new. Because you see, those in the world then, like today, believe happiness comes from earthly wealth and earthly health. That happiness comes through, again, prosperity and prestige. It comes, we're happy when, when there's this fleshly satisfaction and there's ease of circumstances and there's absence of pain and absence of suffering and in, uh, the, the abundance of influential relationships and of positive reputation within certain circles and, and holding powers or positions uh, of power that can be wielded. And so they value those things, and they're preoccupied with attaining and, and holding on to those things. But those in the kingdom, Jesus says those in the kingdom know that this, it's not about this, it's happiness, it's about a deep, abiding joy. 
a deep abiding joy that he has come to provide. And he says, listen, that deep abiding joy, kingdom citizens understand that it can only be experienced, or it can, let me say, it can be experienced. It absolutely can be experienced regardless of temporal possessions. That deep abiding joy can can be experienced regardless of circumstances, regardless of experiences, whether times are happy or sad, whether they're times of adversity and prosperity. They experience this deep abiding joy because they themselves are Christ's possession, and everything that is His is theirs. They experience this deep abiding joy because they understand that He Himself is the bread of life. And that they are sustained. Right? They are sustained not by physical bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They understand that they can experience this deep abiding joy because they know He will comfort them. He will sustain them. And He will do so in the midst of the pain and the suffering. And He will one day wipe away every tear from their eye. They can experience in the now that very deep abiding joy because they know even even when others hate them, Even when others reject them, even when others slander them, they have a friend in Jesus. He is their greatest friend. He is a friend of sinners, and He is the one who has loved them with the greatest love of all. Right? They can withstand what other people dish out because He Himself was hated and excluded and reviled and spurned, or he would be hated, excluded, reviled, spurned, as well as scourged and put to death for them. They were looking at the one who was their greatest treasure. They, They valued, they had come to that place, they valued Jesus most of all. And that brings us to the final point of the exhortation, and actually we should have used a plural, um, exhortations, because there are two. Uh, The first is for his disciples or the kingdom citizens, and the exhortation is be ready. Be ready. And he says, be ready and to prepare, because he says, on account of the Son of Man, because of their relationship with Him, because of their following of Him and their devotion to Him, and because of his, their trust in Him, they are going to be poor. They are going to be hungry. They are going to mourn. They're going to suffer. They're going to be ostracized. They're going to be hated. And they're going to have their reputations ruined because they've identified with Him. And He's, he's letting them know that it's coming. It's a warning. Things were going to go downhill from there. And it's an understatement to say that it wasn't going to be easy. Many of them are going to lose their lives for the sake of Christ and His gospel. 
But notice what he says. He says, in the midst of that, in the midst of the in the midst of lack and need, in the midst of being poor and hungry and suffering and ostracized and hated, they will be able to rejoice. Actually, they will be able to jump up and down in triumphant joy because their ultimate reward, the ultimate reward and the consummation of the kingdom awaited them. It was coming. In other words, he says, look, your best life is not now. Your best life is not now in the present. You, you don't have all you're going to get. It's coming. It was yet to come. And so they were resting not in the temporal, but in the eternal. But then he also exhorts this outer circle. He says, those who are not a part of the kingdom or those of the world don't need to be ready. They need to beware. That's the word, woe. Beware. And they need to beware because at that moment, right, they had a lot of money. That moment they had a lot of wealth. They were rich, right? They were full. They were satisfied. They had their health and their wealth and their prosperity and positions and prestige. And he had even provided health for many of them. And they had it all. And they had it right now. Their best life was at that moment. And that wasn't a good thing. Because there would be and there still will be a day when the Son of Man returns. Right? When Christ will come to judge both the living and the dead. And at that time when He comes to judge, those who are not in Christ will be weighed and measured and found wanting. they will discover that they have been valuing the wrong things. And their lack of trust in Him and their lack of looking to Him and, and trusting in Him for their salvation, their lack of valuing Him will ultimately lead to His or to Him not professing them before the Father. And they will stand before a holy, their holy creator without a mediator and will give an account and also pay for their sins themselves for eternity. It's where the cry, I want it all and I want it now, leads. So as we think about this text, there are a couple of questions we all need to ask of ourselves. There, well, there are a lot of questions we need to ask of ourselves in light of that, but there are two that I want to ask uh, tonight, all right? And the first is this. 
And you know what it is. You know what's coming. You could probably, if I counted to three, I'll say it. Are you a kingdom citizen? Are you a kingdom citizen? Have you admitted your spiritual poverty? Have you admitted that you are spiritually bankrupt? Are you mourning your sin? Are you hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of Christ because you have none of your own? Are you resting in the one who was hated and excluded and reviled and spurned as well as scourged and put to death for sinners like you? If not, today is the day of salvation. The good news of the gospel, today is the day of salvation. And and please hear that your citizenship in that kingdom is not dependent upon the presence or absence of material wealth. It's not dependent upon a lack of or abundance of need. It's not dependent upon uh, whether you have an optimistic or a pessimistic outlook on life. It doesn't matter if all your relationships are positive or if they're all negative or if your reputation is good or not. It's dependent solely upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the exhortation is to look to Him tonight. See Jesus. And the second question is, what do you value most? What is it that we value? For those who are kingdom citizens, we should be different from the world. What we value should be drastically different. We should be valuing and being preoccupied with the things of heaven and not of earth. We should be trusting in and resting in things and pursuing things that the world is not pursuing or resting in. In other words, we shouldn't be resting and pursuing or pursuing and resting in those things that the world is pursuing and resting in. There should be a distinction. We must remember that this is not our best life now, nor is it intended to be right now. It is yet to come. And so, may we hear tonight that in the meantime, while we await, while we look forward to that day and we await, may we remember That regardless of your and my circumstances, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of whether we're rich or poor, regardless of whether we're full or hungry, regardless of whether we're experiencing pleasure or pain, regardless of whether we're happy or sad, uh, whether we are experiencing ease or suffering, whether we are, um, whether we are being or our uh, relationships are all positive or all negative, whether we're being included or excluded, whether we're being praised or slandered. Regardless, we can take heart. And in the days ahead, in the days ahead, If the latter of each of those categories, the poverty, the hunger, the sadness, the pain, the suffering, the hatred, the exclusion, and the ostracism and slander, if all of those things become the rule, 
rather than the exception, due to your love or our love and devotion for Christ and His church, we also can take heart. Listen to these words from John. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And brothers and sisters, he also said, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Take heart this evening. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love? Lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached. And may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power for your glory, for our good, and the sake of Christ and his church. Amen.